I'm Clara Erickson, and you're listening to Collecting Histories, part of my senior thesis for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva School Sakijiai. In this series, we look at national narratives from different angles and perspectives in an attempt to understand the arbitrary divisions of our world. When I went abroad with my girls' choir in middle school for different choir competitions, we would always, from different rows of the plane, burst into song when we touched ground in Sweden again. Which song? Well, this one, ironically enough. This poem, simply called Sverige, or Sweden, from 1899, is a loving, soft, and genuine expression of worship to Sweden, the mother, the land on which my children will build their nests, and beneath which my ancestors sleep. The song is a glimpse into the past, but confusingly enough, also to the future. In their beautiful interpretation of the musical arrangement by Wilhelm Stienhammar, the real group makes even me, an obnoxious post-colonialist and deconstructivist, feel love and dedication for Mother Sweden. For a short second. So far in the series, we've looked at what a national narrative looks like through the lens of Argentina as well as why it's so important for a nation to keep a coherent narrative within its borders, through the lens of American high school history. In this episode, we're not going to look at a very modern narrative, but rather a pretty old one, one which emerged alongside the very idea of the nation. We're going to look at a narrative from my home country, Sweden, how and why it emerged and what it contains and what effects this original national romantic narrative can have. I've given you a glimpse into my brain and its confusion surrounding entitlement and the right to tell a story. Well, this is a narrative I do feel entitled to tell. Probably because I've been told all my life that this is my narrative, that this is the story of me, my family, and my origins. I'm a white-presenting, cis, straight woman with a ridiculously Swedish name, blonde hair and blue eyes. My parents were both born in Sweden, and their parents were as well, Theoretically, I'm about as stereotypically Swedish as one can get. And no one has ever questioned neither my labeling of myself as Swedish, nor my ability to tell its narrative. Right, so what is this narrative? How and why did it come to be? Let's trace back to how it all started, how we, the Swedes, even got a story in the first place. Well, we humans have always organized into groups, whether it's friend groups, clans, tribes, societies, whatever. And as can perhaps be partly seen in the development of Soviet Russia, we have a hard time sticking to anarchy, or the individual or communal sharing of power. We tend to look for a leader, and this has always been the case. Though some sort of democracy was created and practiced in some city-states in ancient Greece, Democracy or the relative distribution of power is a pretty new thing. Like, 
20th century Kenanu thing. And that, incidentally, developed alongside the creation of the idea of nations. National, I guess. You know, the, the nation is this, I mean, you know it because you've read Sapiens, but the nation is this, you know, imagined thing that doesn't really exist, right? Right. Well, okay. This is Oscar. Hello. Oscar was also born and raised in Sweden, Gothenburg to be exact. So I grew up in a very small town just outside of Gothenburg, Sweden, which is Sweden's second biggest city. And yeah, was quite a small town, like 10,000 inhabitants or something like that. Yeah. Has a very Swedish sounding name and is white presenting as well as cis. I can imagine that he was told the same thing as me growing up. This is your story, son, your history and nation. But he shares my frustrations over the very idea of the nation of Sweden, the one we were fed growing up. The idea of a nation has been defined by countless people throughout the last hundred years or so. My favorite definition, and one which laid the grounds for works that I've found really inspirational for the series, is the modernist Benedict Anderson's definition of the nation. You might remember this definition from the last episode. He described the nation as an imagined political community, and imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. It's imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them. Yet in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. This is what Oscar meant by The nation is this, you know, imagined thing that doesn't really exist, right? So basically, the nation encapsulates the idea that there is a shared community, well and alive, which is built up by individuals who feel they have something in common, even though most of them will never meet. Thus, it's not an actual community, but an imagined one. And, you know, it's just so interesting how such, how, how a lie, blatantly a lie like that, an imagined community like that, can become so strong that if you're even if you're so so far apart from each other if you're so separated it's it still you know resonates with you like it'll still feel like you have a bond with them he gives an example i mean taking an absurd example like why would i identify more with you know people someone from right across the water in denmark less than i would with someone in the farthest north of sweden that i would have never like cross paths with and if the nations like if the borders were drawn differently then i would have probably i would have maybe not been in the same country officially as that person right it's like what is it that just because these arbitrarily drawn borders include us in the same space what makes us you know related right well right as you may remember from our intro episode Working and feeling connected with people who we've never met and likely never will requires a common belief in something larger and more important than ourselves. This larger thing can be God, a currency, or a belief system, but nations, at least if you go along with the modernist or postmodernist theories, are more intentional than that. They're formed through a careful narrative which in its essence is describing itself as it would like to be viewed which is then distributed and targeted to its supposed members. This narrative aims to tell the members who they are and who they aren't through a series of historical or less historical events which are framed by a through line which is meant to give people a common history and a future and something to believe in for themselves and those around them. For Sweden, as with most of Europe, 
This narrative and idea were first formed in the 19th century, in light of the Enlightenment ideas, which fueled both the American, Haitian, and French revolutions of the late 18th century. The new and modern ideas, put the paper by guys like Spinoza, Voltaire, Rousseau, proclaim that everyone is born equal and has the right to individual liberty and freedom of expression. Sweden, and now I'm talking about the political unit that was even then called Sweden and not the imagined community of Sweden, had been ruled by different monarchs for hundreds of years. Dynasties had replaced each other, brothers had killed each other for power, I'm looking at you, John III, and wars had been fought between huge armies in different places for different reasons. But before the 19th century, that had been about it. If you were a farmer in the southern region of Sweden, you likely wouldn't have ever described yourself as Swedish. Maybe you would have been Skonsk or Smålensk or even likely just from that village over there. You would have had very little in common with your colleagues growing up in the north, perhaps as much as 2,000 kilometers away, who likely would have said he was a Haridaling or Jemsk. Do you think these people thought themselves to be part of the same community? I think not. If you were a strong dude in your best years and your family couldn't afford to pay for you to be excused, you maybe would have been called into the Swedish army. But you would have fought for your king, not for some concocted idea of communion and belonging. So why this change? Who changed it? Well, these guys definitely had something to do with it. It's January, 1811, and the night outside is cold. From far away, one can hear the gathering of friends in one of the pompous rooms at the Freemason's house in Stockholm. They always come here for a good time, they've done so for years now. They're all old college friends, they've stuck together since their years studying at the prestigious Uppsala University, all from Värmland, a southern region of Sweden, but all that hasn't been important for years now. They moved on to more important conversation topics. Like the loss of Finland to Russia. What a national tragedy, hey, boys? Erik Gustav Jäger, by his friends better known as Einar Tambask Schelfer, all of them had adopted an old Norse name to be used exclusively during all these summons, had already had more than enough brandy from the curd drinking horn he's holding. And he gladly joins in the song. His friends are swaying to the tempo around the table. Not too long ago, Erik had come back from a trip to England, and throughout the night he's gladly shared what he'd seen. What a magnificent nation, strong and proud, a steady sense of identity, a solid and healthy connection to their past. His friends agreed. This was mostly what they discussed during these summons. How to get Sweden back in shape after it had been cut in half both geographically and spiritually only three years earlier. Suddenly, one of Erik's friends stand up. Jakob Adelbet, I'm sorry, Rolf, has a proposition. They should formalize these gatherings. Create a society. The, uh, Götiska Förbundet, the Giddish Society. To help get their ideas out there, get Sweden back on track. A month later, on February 16, 1811, the society is formalized, with statutes, rules, the whole shebang. The society would, and this is Erik Jäger reflecting back, 
through a scientific and poetic processing of Old Norse memories, breathe life into the love for our antiquity, clean its taste, and to some extent awaken the dormant spirit of the nation. And, to some extent, one could actually say that they did. Because they, in the direct aftermath of the Swedish loss of the eastern half of the nation, Finland, revived the first version of what would become Swedish nationalism, Gothicism. A remarkable number of guys present at the initial summon of the Gidish Society in 1811, as well as those who joined later, would come to occupy influential positions in society in the years to come, as well as set the tone for the national narratives in the centuries to come, its shift from Gothicism to Scandinavianism, and onto the more classical hero-romanticism of the later part of the 19th century. Erik Gustav Jäger would soon become one of the 19th century most influential voices within the cultured elite, publishing works like The Swedish People's History, 1-3, and countless musical pieces which set the tone for the whole national romantic era in Swedish literature and music. Jakob Aderbet and late joiner Arvid August Afselius would translate several Old Norse stories which would increase the everyday Swede's ability to identify with the glorious past of the Vikings. Esaias Tegnier would become one of the most famous poets in Swedish history, as well as perhaps the biggest player of the 19th century. These were the guys who, through literature, music, poems, and political reforms, constructed the national romantic and original national narrative of the Swedish nation. They tended to come from well-off, but not noble, families who could send them to universities and then work as state officials, professors at schools and universities, or advisors to the regime. They were the educated creme de la creme of society. Coming from the bourgeois, rather than the more traditionally royalist nobility, these men would benefit hugely from a bit of shift in power, from an absolute monarchy to a more balanced division of power between the estates, where the bourgeois was overrepresented and the monarchy. These men had the political motivation to shift communal pride to the abstract idea of the nation, the education to ideate it, and the money to power it. Isaias Tegnir, for example, was awarded the big prize of literature by the Swedish Academy in 1810. You know, the group of people who now decide who will win the Nobel Prize in Literature, for his praise of the Swedish nation and Mother Svea in the poem Svea, a text which spoke to the hope for societal change and better governance by the monarchy. This prize and his subsequent position in the Swedish Academy would give him the boost he needed to become one of the most influential voices in the cultural elite. So, then, what kind of story did Tegnia, Nyayer, and the rest of the Giri society create? Well, they created a true Gothicist narrative, one with true and deep roots and with a reliable arc. They handpicked goodies from a buffet of history. I'm sure you've seen or read at least one of the following stories. The Odyssey, The Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Lion King. But what makes them so captivating? And what do they have in common? Well, they all follow the same script or literary recipe. A recipe that is so epic that it's transcended millennia. Written in the good old literary recipe as the Odyssey, Don Quixote, and with a clear sense of right and wrong, hero and villain, as well as a clear narrative arc, it's a story which knows how to stir up and instigate feelings for those included in it. And as with every good story, 
The Swedish one has a first chapter where important character traits are introduced. One morning from shore, I spotted a ship. Into the bay, it shot like an arrow. My heart swelled and my mind grew fevered. What was missing was clear to me now. I ran from the goats for my mother as well, and the Viking took me aboard a ship, bound for sea. Forceful winds filled the sails, we flew on the backs of the waves. Into deepening blue, the mountaintops sank. It felt like such a thrill. I was dauntless. Taking in hand my father's rusted sword, I swore I would conquer for kingdom and country out at sea. I was twenty years old and calamity struck. The waters demanded my blood. The sea knew it well, having drunk it before, where the hottest battles raged. The fervid heart races fast, but soon will be cooled in the icy realm of the sea. So sings from a lonely mountain hall, the shipwrecked viking in the churning surf. The ocean draws him down, and the waves chant their song. And the carefree wind keeps changing its course, but the remembrance of valor still lives. Remember our boy Erik? Well, in 1811, shortly after him and his friends founded the Giedis Society, he wrote this poem, his most famous work. It so perfectly underlines how the goddessists thought and founded the Swedish nation, with a strong and brave Viking at its very foundation. This poem was published by the society's own paper and describes the life of a ruthless Viking who throughout his life bravely fights and raids foreign lands in the name of his kingdom. When the waves finally take him, the wind and waves remember his bravery and valor. In the National Romantic Narrative, the Viking is a capable and practical man, with massive muscles and a longing for the stormy seas and faraway lands. He is simultaneously a ruthless warrior, pillaging villages and raping women, and a loving husband and countryman who provides for his land and family. This self-righteous man is the strong hero of our classic national myth, the very foundation of the national narrative and the starting point of its constructed identity. This image was created by Erik Jäger and his contemporaries in their struggles to get Sweden's national image back on its feet after the embarrassing defeat by Russia and the loss of Finland. The Vikings, to many, even today, represent a time of strength, power, and values worth reviving. In an environment of growing nationalism, they remain something to look back on as the start of how Sweden became Sweden. The origin of the story to come, if you will. Chapter 2. The Reformation. The Story of Our Secular Values. Fast forward 500 years to 1523, the beginning of the next chapter, when Gustav Vasa, a noble son whose dad was killed by Danish King Christian II, by Swedish history dubbed Christian the Tyrant, has crowned himself king over the newly independent Sweden. Uh, which is when Gustav I, also known as Gustav Vasa, uh, was coronated. And this is usually seen like from like the way that I learned it in school as when Sweden officially became like 
Sweden, I guess, like modern day Sweden. Um, our national day, uh, June 6th, is like in like remembrance of him becoming king. Yeah, he took up a big portion of Oscar and I's history books. He's often crowned the father of the Swedish nation. And though more recent historiography has highlighted his cruel traits and pitfalls as a, well, father, he remains one of our more reformist kings, mainly for the Reformation. The Reformation of Sweden from Catholicism to Protestantism, and an important crossroads in Swedish history and identity. The story goes that down in mainland Europe, Martin Luther has just stirred up scandal after scandal, and the Swedish economy was in shambles after years of fighting with Denmark. Gustav needed quick cash, and he saw a golden opportunity to nationalize all the lands owned by the church and the money and gold it had collected in taxes from the people, as he could legitimize the nationalization by saying, but, but Luther said. This perspective of how Sweden changed religion was, as with all narratives, a chosen perspective. The focus lies on the economic values of the Reformation, rather than in the values of the new religion. I've never actually heard anyone asking the question of whether Valsa actually believed in the values of Luther's new Protestant church, and therefore wanted to bring change. What, however, is told with great pride is that the Reformation jump-started our road towards secularity, a current identity aspect Sweden as a nation is very proud of. Swedes believe in progress. Swedes believe that we have left the superstitions of the old times. We have left the belief in God. There is no place for religion to be part of societal decisions, so why would it have been for Vasa, our founding father? So Vasa builds the nation and plants the first seeds of the story it tells of itself. Sweden is Protestant, but secular. Chapter 3. Great Sweden. The story of our great olden days. Towards the end of the 1500s or beginning of the 1600s, um, we enter what's called Stormaktsiden in Swedish, or the Great Era, uh, when the Swedish Empire was formed. This is the Swedish national anthem, commonly known as Du Gamla Du Fria, or Thou Ancient Thou Free, written in 1844 by Rika Dybeck. Thou thronest on memories of great olden days, when honored thy name flew across the earth. I know that thou art and will remain what thou were. Yes, I want to live, I want to die in the north. The 1600s are those great olden days when Sweden's name honored flew across the earth. Or so goes the story. Through military advances in all directions, the Swedish crown managed to encompass what today is Estonia, Latvia, as well as parts of Denmark, Norway, Russia, and Germany in this ever-expanding kingdom. A well-trained, pillaging army abroad, high taxes at home, and high royal ambitions for the power led our nation to glory. We always, I guess, like, we always learned about this in school as, like, 
you know, the one great time in Swedish history that we actually had some influence, you know? Once upon a time back in history, somewhere in the 15 or 1600s, we actually were an empire and we had influence. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to look at it that way. And I guess apart from that time and then very, very recent modern times, Sweden really hasn't had any influence on the like international stage. Between 1554 and 1809, Sweden fought pretty much any and all of its neighboring powers, with no peace within this 250-year period, lasting more than 30 years. Swedish kings fought Russia, Denmark, Poland, the Habsburg Empire, Prussia, and France. In the name of the territory, religious differences, royal rivalries, or whatever else they could rally troops by. Earlier history writing emphasized the greatness of the Swedish armies and their advances. More recent Swedish narratives have focused rather on the altruism of the expansion. Perhaps what the Swedish national identity looks back to the most here is our 50 minutes of fame during the Thirty Years' War. Okay, fine, 30 years of fame. According to my history book, Sweden more or less took it upon itself to protect the poor and helpless German Protestant princes from the ruthless advances of the Catholic Habsburg Empire. I tend to be of the opinion that war should be avoided at all costs, and so this seemingly pointless series of wars making up the great era in Swedish history makes me a bit queasy. But I think that Oscar hit the nail right on the head when he said that this bygone time of influence, importance, is just what a national identity or narration needs. The great olden days for Sweden, make America great again for the US, and so on. Chapter 4. The Emigration. The Story of Our Loss. Sweden was, believe it or not, once upon a time, a very, very poor country. And the story of Swedish immigration to the US is a tragic one. A story of starvation and poverty. See, 1867 was a remarkably cold year. Already in July, farmers in the northern parts of Sweden could see all their hard works get destroyed by a couple of devastating the cold nights, which killed most of their carefully grown crops on the barren land. Though some food relief was distributed to the affected, the government had started seeing the advantages of neoliberalism and was not about to give up their laissez-faire hands-off politics just like that. The lazy poor needed to work to earn help. In the next few years, harvests in southern Sweden also failed due to drought caused by rapid temperature changes. Life looked hopeless for many, and millions scraped together just enough money to get a ticket to one of the Atlantic liners and the route to the American dream. This is always the number I heard, like, I don't know if it's exaggerated, but about 200,000 Swedish people left for America, like, during that time. Actually, before the end of the century, more than one million Swedes, about a third of the population, had taken the boat across the pond to the new lives in America. One million? Seriously? Oh damn. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. It was a huge loss for Sweden in many ways. 
But as the story goes, the immigration freed up space and opportunity for those who stayed and helped propel the progress leading up to the new century. But I think that this tragic event has been used as a sort of, I don't know, bedtime horror story in the socialist upbringing of the Swedish nation. Sure, it all started due to unusually cold nights, but the situation could have been avoided if the government had just fulfilled its obligation to its people. But, in the grand scheme of things, perhaps the Malthusian human supply and demand theory has a point, and a way to ease the burden for those left was to dilute the concentration of the population. Because through the ashes rises the phoenix. Bam bam bam! Who said I didn't have a knack for the dramatic? Well, I guess really it's the Swedish story that's made dramatic. Chapter 5. Neutrality. The story of our morale. Following the loss of Finland and Pomerania, and the union with Norway in the years 1809 to 1814, as well as more or less forced peace agreements on all fronts after 250 years of constant warfare, Sweden withdrew from the power games of the continent. From here on forward, Sweden would keep to its own corner of the world, during the cover of neutrality. But the neutrality as such took years to develop, and started with a reimagining of the goals of the Swedish state. One of the most influential voices during the early days of neutrality comes from poet and bishop Isaias Tegnir, one of the guys from the Gidi Society. In a text from 1812, he describes this change of mind. Instead, I think that the thought to that point should be turned, that the larger the losses, the more the national spirits should focus on protecting what is left, and to make the motherland larger within narrower borders. In turning inwards, Sweden stopped minding other nations' business and reframed the role of governments to protect what was left and make the nation better, not bigger. In this process, the neutrality and introvert policies turned into national morale and mantra to not mind other people's business, to keep to ourselves. With time, this became an explicit foreign policy, actively practiced in the face of confrontations. So. In 1914, at the start of the First World War, Sweden decided to do what Sweden does best, compromise and avoid conflict at all costs. Thus, all democratic parties, or all parties excluding the communist left, entered into a coalition to secure domestic stability, and Sweden declared itself to be neutral. The government focused on providing for the people and to guard the borders. But the larger the losses, the more the national spirits should focus on protecting what is left. Sweden remained neutral until the end of the war and suffered no great losses unlike most of Europe. The next war came just 20 years later and Sweden's political elite brushed off the dust of the old neutrality policy and gathered all the parties in the coalition government again. But this time things were getting a bit more complicated. In order to stay neutral and on the outside, Sweden started off the war with agreeing to sell iron and weapons to Germany and letting German troops go through Sweden on their way to Norway. Sweden finished off the war cheering for the Allies and joining in the embargo of Germany as things started going downhill for Hitler. All in the great spirit of neutrality. Now, I'm not into objective morality, and so, I won't say whether neutrality is morally good or bad, but 
I will say that it has caused some problems, especially with Norway in the post-war years, after our dick move letting German troops through to save our own skin. But it likely also saved millions of Swedish lives, and made wartime Sweden way less hard to live in than most of war-ridden Europe. It's also created a historical and moral groundwork for the story of modern Sweden abroad, and our role in the world. Chapter 6. Folkhemmet. The story of our progress. Presented as a direct effect of our hardline neutrality, Sweden flourished in the post-war years. In fact, the 50s and 60s are often called the record years in the national narrative. Since most of the factories of the European continent have been blown up, our intact industry bloomed. Progressive ideas started flourishing in the increased prosperity, and large social projects were initiated to bring up the standards of the Swedish society. It laid the ground for our beloved welfare. These are the days of Folkhemmet, the people's home. Out with the old and in with the new. Folkhemmet meant huge changes for the living standards of the Swedish population. You know, everyone uh, being part of what we would call in Swedish Folkhemmet, like the people's home or whatever, like all of Sweden was this huge home and everyone was part of it. This is an educational film about Norway, Sweden and Denmark from 1962, created by EB Films in the US. Sweden believes that all citizens are entitled to a certain protection on the basis of need rather than ability to pay, and that ultimately society will gain by providing such care, as it gains by providing better education. And although Folkhemmet and its societal programs brought improvements to large parts of the Swedish population, it also perpetrated old, racist, and ableist ideas of who was to be able to be part of this new and inclusive society. The Swedish Institute for Race Biology was alive and well until it changed its name to the, to this day, active Institute for Medical Genetics in 1958. Sweden didn't until 1977 recognize the Sami people as a native people, and their forced integration into the Swedish majority culture happens to this day. Media and politicians did until very recently debate who should be allowed to produce Swedish citizens, and forced sterilizations affected especially the Roma and trans communities. Cooperation, robust self-reliance and energy, maximum utilization of resources, these are the keys to Scandinavia's success toward achieving what every nation wants. Security and prosperity for all of the people. Or again, so goes the story. In this epic story of Sweden, we've been given the roots in the shape of brave seafarers and warriors, and character in the shape of our secularity. 
We reach the sort of abyss or climax in the glory days of warfare, only to suffer great loss and a push for transformation with a great hunger and the immigration of millions. Picking up the pieces of what was left, and building a sense of morale and direction, the neutrality gave Sweden the possibility to build itself and its community up again, and arrive at the point of progressiveness. Do you know what this sounds like to me? The literary device, The Hero's Journey, outlined and analyzed by Joseph Campbell in 1949, which is present in literally every science fiction, fantasy, or children's book ever written. It goes like this. The hero is described, gets a call to adventure, and then crosses the known into the unknown. After challenges and temptations, the hero reaches the abyss and the revelation, followed by transformation and atonement. After great achievement and gifts from the gods, the hero returns home to the known. Except in this story, the hero is Sweden, and the journey is a very carefully selected series of historical events, told through very selected angles. The story of Sweden is nothing more than just that, a story. Some, or perhaps even most, of events talked about in the narrative did indeed happen, but as with every writing of the past, it really matters how we write about these events, how we frame them, and what we want audiences to take away from arguments and descriptions. You know, we're very happy to associate with the Vikings because they're very well known internationally, they're very like, uh, they're, they were very good at fighting wars, whatever. Not that that has any like resonance with what Sweden stands for these days, right? But still, it's kind of looked at as like, um, a status symbol almost like we have we have something to lay claim to right but at the same time we don't necessarily associate with the terrible things that Sweden has done for example um, so it's you know it's it's very much enforced on a nation's people to kind of either reject some things or embrace others yeah. The issue with the national romantic narrative of the nation, in this case Sweden, is that it constructs a narrative which relies on, builds, and emphasizes emotional attachment to stories. Its primary objective is making me feel related and attached to something I don't actually have anything in common with. So like the Vikings. They spoke Old Norse, I speak Swedish. They believed in the Norse gods, I'm an atheist. I spent most of my time on the computer. They went fishing or whatever. Except for their human traits, I have very little to organically relate to. I mean, I can't even prove that I'm actually related to them, as we have no records left from them. Except for some old runestones here and there describing some great dude who sailed across the ocean and stole gold. Yet, this narrative, and the high and low points of it, have been taken to heart by generations after generations of Swedes for the past 200 years of its existence. And even though the narrative has changed in how it's taught in schools and media, as well as in content, a lot of people still cling to the idea of our great past as real and theirs, something to look back to and strive towards. Uh, thank you for letting me speak here today. My name is Tobias Andersson, and I'm the national president for Young Swedes, 
the youth organization belonging to the Sweden Democrats. The Swedish Democrats are the nationalist party recently gaining momentum in the country. With pink letters and friendly fonts, they appeal to the many who believe that Sweden has entered into decay since the recent migration waves from the Middle East and Africa. Tobias is speaking at the 2016 Young Independence Congress in Manchester with the slogan, hashtag Free Britain. He's blonde, with slick back hair, a white, well-pressed button-up shirt, and suntan skin from a summer at the beach. He looks proper and privileged. He's looking out over a sea of young, hopeful Brexiteers. Uh, you probably have heard of Sweden. As he introduces where he's from, a smug look curves the edge of his mouth. Even though it's one of the few countries that you guys haven't invaded yet. <laughs> In instead, Swedes and other Vikings are one of the few peoples that actually have invaded you. And I suppose that only the Romans were as successful as the Vikings here on British soil. But there's no need to worry. I'm not here to steal your belongings, occupy your houses, or attack your woman. He goes on to saying some pretty sexist and awful things about women and immigrants, which I honestly wish I wouldn't have heard, but I think you get the gist of where he thinks he stems from. On the stage of a conference, this dude steps up, starts with introducing himself by name, and then uses the Vikings or literally exactly the same narrative of the Viking as that 1811 poem to describe himself and why he's ever there. Though he says he's not there to do what they've been known for doing, he says this with a smug smile, like a father who's half-heartedly reprimanding his son for doing something stupid while smiling down at him proudly. Tobias describes himself as a Viking in its purest national romantic form. The masculine, ruthless, and successful warriors who went all over undefeated. He relates to them, sees himself as one of them. In his mind, there's a clear narrative arc with crossroads of right and wrong. In his view, book one about Sweden the hero ended in the 1970s when everything was good and well, just like the story I just told you, but without that last bit being so positive. Because in his view, we are now in book two, where Sweden, instead of fighting poverty, is fighting the cultural decay that is multiculturalism and increased immigration. In the year 1975, our parliament agreed up on creating a multicultural Sweden. And I suppose that the naive socialists at that time thought it was a good idea. Uh, today, though, we see the result from this and it's a complete disaster. He goes on to describing the supposed state of Sweden and gives it the completely incorrect title The Rape Capital of the World. The Rape Capital of the World. I mean, come on, dude. Like, look at some statistics from, I don't know, anywhere. He sees Sweden as being somewhere in the middle of this book, fighting the enemy, but sees a future where Sweden returns to a strong majority culture and racial unity. This is the nationalist narrative, which is the most present today, perpetuated by right-wing parties like Tobias's and rooted in emotions rather than facts. Nationalist movements in Sweden and elsewhere in the world are returning to simplistic and emotional narratives of heroic arcs and right and wrong. 
These movements are in part fueled by the fear of the unknown, fear of being left behind, and fear of a changing world structure where majority culture is no longer possible. The problem with this kind of narrative, the emotion-driven narrative, is that it's impossible to disprove. It doesn't rely on facts. I can't bring well-founded arguments about how the Vikings actually mainly engaged in trade to guys like Tobias and expect him to change his mind right away. Oh gee, thanks Clara, now I understand. No. Narratives like the ones that were born in the 1800s and perpetuated to this day are dangerous because they rely on emotion to create a sense of us, to create a sense of belonging and identity. As we've talked about before, these types of narratives use a very explicit definition of us and them in order to create unity amongst those who quote-unquote matter and to help us through confusing feelings and thoughts of where and how we belong which oftentimes cause conflicts between groups who see themselves as the rightful owners of something national and groups they see as intruders. Songs, images, heroes, and motherly images guide us through the darkness towards a better and brighter future, which, suspiciously enough, looks just like the good old days, whatever those ever were. You've been listening to Collecting Histories and me, Clara Erickson. For suggested reading, bibliographies, and more, visit our website, collectinghistories.com. This series is part of my capstone project for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. Thanks to Professor Grace Woodsbucket, my advisor, to Onda Yoshina and Mika Lanier for their invaluable feedback, and to my sibling, Eli Eriksson, for helping me with ideation and support. Thanks to my journalism class for reading through and really pushing me to make this episode the best it could be. Thanks to Oscar Ianberg for agreeing to be interviewed, and to my dad, Perik Eriksson, and Theodor Vestemark for sending me recordings from across the world. Special thanks to the real group and Anders Edenroth who let me use their recording of Sverige to introduce this whole thing. Tack, Anders. Find the rest of the music credits and works used in informing this episode in the bibliography on our website. See you next week.